Do you love true crime, but wish it were a little easier to talk about or listen to? Do you like to laugh at the absurdity of stupid criminals? Do you wish you had someone to talk about the latest true crime documentary with? Then you need to go and subscribe to the true crime podcast, Shaken and Disturbed, right now. Hosted and produced by true crime veterans John Thrasher and Darren Karp, these two have hundreds of hours of episodes under their belt and are releasing new episodes every week. There's even a Patreon with bonus episodes if you just can't get enough true crime. From famous cases like John Wayne Gacy to ones you've never heard of before, Shaken and Disturbed is truly the perfect true crime podcast for anyone. Subscribe to Shaken and Disturbed wherever you're listening to this show right now. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder... Stand by your man. It's more than a song. It's the idea that no matter how bad things can get, you stand by the one you love. On June 7th, 1998, a woman was killed inside of her home and her six-year-old granddaughter was raped and left for dead. And as the man responsible was placed behind bars, the woman who loved him promised to stand by him and fight for his innocence, even if the victim was her own mother. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. In the early morning hours of June 7th, 1998, a woman named Tanya Brazel heard a knock on her Barberton, Ohio door and open it to a sight that would have made many of us let out a scream of terror. Standing in her doorway was her six-year-old neighbor, Brooke, still in her blood-covered nightgown with a bruised-up body. Instead of immediately calling the police, Tanya told the young girl to wait on the porch while she finished cooking her children breakfast, and that, when she was done, she would drive her home. She came out and got Brooke 45 minutes later, taking her to her mother's home, who then called police. The police were soon dispatched to the scene, and inside of the home lay a gruesome sight. Lying dead inside of her house was 58-year-old Judy Johnson, Brooke's grandmother, who had been asleep on the couch when someone came inside and brutally attacked her. She had been raped so severely that her nose, jaw, collarbone, and skull were fractured, and her cause of death was determined to be strangulation. Wanting to figure out what exactly happened, police turned to the only witness they had, a six-year-old little girl. According to Brooke, who was asleep in her grandmother's bed, she was awoken by a strange noise coming from the living room. In her own words, I got out of bed and I went to the kitchen and I looked and I seen that there was a guy in the kitchen, but it scared me. So I ran back to the bedroom where she pretended to be asleep. The intruder then entered the room and hit Brooke in the face, knocking her unconscious. She was then beaten, raped and strangled, but ultimately survived, though her memory of the attack is almost non-existent. When she regained consciousness several hours later, she phoned a neighbor and left a message on their machine. It said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but my grandma died and I need somebody to get my mom for me. I'm all alone. Somebody killed my grandma. Now, please, would you get a hold of me as soon as you can? Bye. When she hung up, she made her way to Tanya Brazel's home and knocked on her door looking for help. As police continued to pepper her with questions, Brooke made a statement that would send this whole case into overdrive. According to the young girl, the killer, quote, looked like Uncle Clarence. 
Brooke's uncle and Judy's 35-year-old son-in-law, Clarence Arnold Elkins Sr. A statement that was backed up when Tanya reported to Brooke's mother that Brooke named Clarence as her attacker. Police took this statement and ran with it, naming Clarence as their one and only suspect and arresting him for the murder of his beloved mother-in-law and young niece. When brought to trial, the prosecution asserted that Clarence had a motive for killing Judy, that he was frustrated by the role she was playing in his then-contentious marriage with her daughter Melinda, and that if Brooke said he was the man who attacked her and her grandmother, who were they to deny a first-hand account of the crime? So the entire case against Clarence was built on this one statement. There were no signs of forced entry, no fingerprints, or DNA linking him to the scene of the crime. And the hair found only excluded him as a suspect. He claimed he was out drinking with friends well into the night and didn't come home until about 2.40 a.m. on the 7th, a fact that Melinda corroborated despite the fact that her husband was being accused of killing her own mother. She claimed that she was awake taking care of their sick child, so she knew exactly where he was during the suspected murder time. Not to mention the fact that Judy's home was more than an hour away, and friends and neighbors cooperated the times he came home for the evening. But they couldn't get over the chilling statements made by Brooke, and because of this, on June 10, 1999, Clarence Elkins was convicted of murder, attempted aggravated murder, two counts of rape by force or threat of force, and felonious assault. He was sentenced to two life terms. Now, while many would have never forgiven the man who killed their mother, Melinda Elkins knew something was wrong. She knew where Clarence was, and not only that, but she knew how much Clarence loved and respected Judy. She just couldn't wrap her head around the idea that he was responsible. So she started to do her own investigation. She made her own suspect list and for years set out to get the DNA of every single person on her list of 12. She flirted with men at strip clubs in order to pluck out a strand of hair, pulled their beer bottles from the trash or cigarette butts from the floor and carefully preserved them in her own freezer, telling her sons not to touch the makeshift evidence bags. She was a force to be reckoned with, but knew she couldn't do it completely alone. So she hired a private investigator, Martin Yant, a man familiar with exoneration cases. Now, Melinda's family had suffered a terrible loss, and because of the nature of that loss, there had been a massive divide between each of the family members. There were those who believed Clarence was a cold-hearted killer, and those who believed Judy's case was still unsolved. Because of this, Melinda hadn't spoken to her sister or to Brooke since the trial, but Martin insisted that, without her family's support, this case would never be solved. So she made the effort to reconnect with Brooke and her family, who at this point had suspicions of their own. According to Brooke, now about eight or nine years old, she was certain that Clarence wasn't the man inside of Judy's home that night. In fact, she said it couldn't have been Clarence. The person that hurt me and Mima had brown eyes, and Clarence has blue eyes. When asked about this later in life, Brooke said that her child's mind saw a man similar to Clarence in his build or structure. But when she said it out loud, her small statement was taken and twisted in a way that made it seem like she was pointing the finger at her uncle. She was young, scared, confused, and when the statement was taken into police record, terrified to rectify the mistake. 
Clarence's attorney interviewed Brooke on camera where she recanted her statements against her uncle. And Clarence, from his cell, worked to appeal his conviction based on this new evidence. But the judge wasn't buying it. Convinced that Brooke had been coached by relatives, the appeal was denied. Melinda wasn't ready to give up, so she fought to have the DNA retested based on all of the samples she had in her freezer. The court ruled that she could have access to the DNA recovered from the scene, but demanded that she pay for the cost of the test. So she did. With the help of the Ohio Innocence Project, she raised almost $40,000 and convinced a Texas laboratory to half the cost of testing two samples. The results excluded Clarence Elkins. So he appealed again based on DNA, and again, he was denied. The court ruled that he was convicted based on Brooks' testimony, not DNA. Therefore, it didn't matter that the samples didn't match. But Melinda continued, and with the support of her family, she found out information that, up until this point, she had no clue about. Because she and her sister weren't speaking at the time, she didn't know about Tanya Brazel and how she drove Brooke home the morning of the attack. And when Melinda looked into this new puzzle piece in Clarence's case, found out that Tanya's common-law husband, Earl Mann, was a convicted sex offender who had been released just two days before Judy and Brooke's attack. This was too much to be a coincidence, and coupled with the fact that Tanya made the young girl wait on her porch instead of calling 911, was too much for Melinda to ignore. She started to look for Earl G. Mann and found out that the Florida-born man and found out that the Florida-born man had an extensive criminal record, ranging from racially motivated assault to robbery to a 2002 conviction for raping his three daughters, who were all under the age of 10. She knew she needed to test his DNA, but there was a small problem. He was currently serving prison time and was just out of her reach, but he wasn't out of Clarence's. The men just so happened to be sent to the same prison, and Melinda set up a meeting with her husband to give him instructions on how to get a sample from Earl. Carefully, as to not raise any suspicion, Clarence collected a cigarette butt from Earl and sent it off to the lab. It was a match. While he waited for the next step in this unprecedented situation, Clarence had to serve time side by side with the man who was responsible for his wrongful conviction. The man who killed his mother-in-law, raped his niece, and ruined his family. Finally named a suspect in 2005, an officer in Barberton came forward and said that there was a memorandum from 1999, four months before Clarence's trial, in which Earl was arrested for an unrelated robbery and, drunk and belligerent, asked why he hadn't been arrested for the murder of Judy Johnson. This memo was sent to the detectives working Judy's case, but was never disclosed to the defense. Given all of this information, Tanya was brought in for police questioning where she admitted that Earl came home early that morning with scratches on his back. When she questioned him, he said he had been with a wild woman, but when Brooke knocked on the door hours later, he became angry and insisted that Tanya not let her in or call the police. Melinda went on to publicly say that she believed it was on that car ride to Brooke's mother that Tanya did her best to influence Brooke's identification, that she was the first person to hear that so-called statement and relate it to Brooke's mother, who was so distraught she, understandably, ran with it. Despite all of this information and the DNA, the district attorney refused to release Clarence Elkins. After making several contacts and getting nowhere, 
Clarence's attorneys contacted the Ohio State Attorney General, Jim Petro, who decided to hold a press conference and publicly pressure the prosecutor to dismiss the charges. They performed their own DNA testing, and when they came back matching Earl Mann, there was little they could do to deny their errors. On December 15, 2005, Clarence Elkins was released from prison. In a sad turn of events, in 2006, he filed for divorce from the woman who gave new meaning to stand by your man. It was finalized in 2007. In 2008, 10 years after Judy's murder and Brooke's brutal attack, a plea agreement was reached and Earl pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to 55 years in prison and will be eligible for parole when he is 92 years old. In the aftermath of this sensational case, Clarence Elkins settled with the state of Ohio for just over $1 million and with the Barberton police for $5.25 million. He helped to get the Senate Bill 77 passed, known as the Ohio's Innocence Protection Act, and advocates for innocence reform bills using his case as a prime example. He and his new wife, Molly, established the Clarence Elkins Scholarship at the University of Cincinnati College of Law, which provides $5,000 annually to the Ohio Innocence Project, which is housed at UC Law School, and gives money to two students in the project each year. Melinda Elkins Dawson has taken what she learned and still fights for others like Clarence. She was instrumental in getting Ohio to pass Senate Bill 262, the post-conviction DNA law, and serves as chair of the board of directors for Ohioans to stop execution. She is a public speaker, a victim's advocate, and fights to bring awareness to wrongful convictions. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on June 8th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.